Well, this morning we're going to be back in our series on I Am, and we've looked at several different things through the Bible so far. Uh, first, God is he's our, our shield. He goes before us. He guides us through. Uh, he, he guides us to the places where we can worship and be a part of his kingdom. He's our almighty. He is our vision. Uh, he is our deliverer. Uh, we looked last week at that story where Moses had gone down and told Pharaoh what God said, thinking it would be a piece of cake, uh, a walk in the park, and Pharaoh said, <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, today, uh, we're going to jump past all the plagues and all the destruction. You're welcome. That's a lot of stuff in there that you can go through and deal with. And I want to come to the time when God's people have gone through all those plagues, watched all the things that have happened, Pharaoh's mess that he had uh, happen in his land. Uh, we've seen the miracle already of going through the Red Sea, the water being parted, and God delivering his people out of that land. And now they are at Mount Sinai, where Moses uh, goes up to the top. Uh, and in the midst of that, God speaks again, he is, I am. God is our I am. Today, I want to talk to you about he is our standard. Uh, and what he does in Exodus 19, we're going to be in Exodus 20, but in Exodus 19, he says this. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, number one, and number two, keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then we have this scene at Mount Sinai, shrouded in mystery, just like the mountain itself was shrouded in a cloud, trying to figure out what's going on. And God lays out the standard for us if we're going to be his people, how we live our lives. And you're thinking to yourself, if you've already looked ahead at the text that we're going to look at, you're thinking 10 commandments in 30 minutes. I'm kind of like dominoes, okay? I'll deliver it in 30 minutes or less, or it's free. Come on, y'all. You're thinking, there's no way you can talk about Ten Commandments in 30 minutes. Well, we're going to look at the big picture today. We're going to step back and get the 30,000 view, 30,000 altitude view, okay? So I want you to hang in there with me because we're going to, we've got our running shoes on today and we're going to run. You ready? All right. There's three things I want you to see. We're going to talk this morning primarily about what I call the vertical and the horizontal aspect of life. Because that's really how the Ten Commandments are laid out. They're laid out in two, ha two halves, two parts, where one is dealing with what I call the vertical. How do we relate to God? What's our connection with Him? What's our life supposed to look like in relation to our God? And then the others, there's seven of them, deal with the horizontal. How do we deal with us? That's where the hard part comes in, isn't it? seems like the first part's not as hard as the second part because dealing with people can sometimes be challenging. Let's just put it that way, right? Sometimes all of us have that family member that we kind of go, do they have to show up at the reunion? Come on, y'all. We have those people in work situations and in life we go, man, if I could see them like never again, I'd, my life would be perfect, okay? But we have to learn how to deal with those kind of things. And I think what God does here is he lays out the standard for us on how to deal with this. So, but let's begin first with a confirmation. God, first of all, confirmed or confirms his work in their lives. He says, I have been at work in your life. I've been moving. I've been working. I've been doing things. Look what he says in verse 1. And God spoke all these things saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. Now, you've you got to tell yourself, they're standing there at the bottom of this mountain, Moses is at the top of the mountain, hearing these words, and you want to just kind of go, 
God, we've seen all this, but don't we need to be reminded from time to time of how good our God is, how he has worked in our lives, how he has worked amazing things through us. We've got to be going, oh, yeah, God, you've done that. Yes, you've done that. And God says, hey, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He reminds them what he's done. Remember, there was a group of people, the people of Israel. Remember, Israel was a guy, Jacob renamed Israel, was a guy who started out with just two people. And by the time they went into Egypt, there was about 70 plus in the family because it had kind of grown at that point. And now 400 years later, there's about 2 million people living in this amazing fertile ground across the river from basically where the capital of Egypt was called Goshen, and they were renamed the Hebrews because they were from over there, from over the river, as we might say in South Louisiana uh, or New Orleans while I lived down there. And, but, but God is at work in their lives. No longer are they small. They become great. No longer are there 70 people. There's 2 million. And yet, in the greatness of their numbers, they needed to be reminded it was who that had brought them out. It wasn't their ingenuity. It wasn't their ability. It wasn't their skill. It wasn't their talent. It was God who had brought them out of that land. It was God at work in them. It was God who had supernaturally broken into the situation and says, we're going out. And it was God at work in them. In fact, it was God who had delivered them from slavery and had them on the cusp of something great in their lives. They were headed to the promised land, the land that Abram had lived in, that he had been promised by God that they would possess, the land that Isaac had lived in, the land that Jacob had lived in some 400 years before. He said, now we're going back to that land, and I'm going to take you there. But in order to get there, and for order, or in order for us to move forward, God is going to lay out 10 big ideas they need to add to their lives. And just like us, they would have found some of these easy to do, and we find some of them Not so easy to do. We're going to talk about the vertical, how we relate to God, the one who delivers us from spiritual slavery, and then we're going to talk about the horizontal, how we relate to each other on this journey called life. So number two, God calls them to what? To worship him alone. He called them to worship him alone. There's three aspects in this part of the text related to worshiping God alone that they needed to grasp. And the first one is this realization that, that he alone is God. I didn't put them all on the screen this morning, so you can just listen along. If you want to make notes, you can. I'll try to point out the three or seven as we get through it. But first of all is that, he, that we receive that God alone is God. He alone is our God. You're going, well, yeah, we got that, Patrick. We don't have to think about that. Oh, but we do, my friends. Because it's very difficult for us to grasp at times, but the world in which they live was very polytheistic. Egypt had hundreds of gods. You're going, hundreds of gods? Yeah, they had hundreds of them. The people in, in the Euphrates Valley where Abram was from originally had multiple gods. The people that Moses had married into a family had multiple gods. You're going, multiple gods? What? We all know there's just one god. Well, we do, Right? But they didn't. They were still struggling with that concept. You think, well, that doesn't happen in our world, does it? Well, it it is true. It's not only true of a Buddhist or a Hindu. It's also true for a fully secularized Western culture just like ours. What do you mean? If you look around, you see tons of things, multitudes of items that take our attention. And they serve as gods. That's with a little g, not a big g. Let me define the, the word God very broadly for you for a second so you kind of with me on this. Let, let, let's define God this way. And I'm not talking about holy God 
Emmanuel. I'm talking about the term little g, O-D, okay? God is anyone or anything in life that takes our priority or our precedence. Big G God says, I want to be your all in all. But we often have little G's, don't we, that take over. This could be a possession. It could be an activity. It could be a belief. It could be a preference. It could be a a myriad of things that we allow to get in the place of God and take over from that. For the people of Egypt, excuse me, people coming out of Egypt, for many of them it was actually golden idols that they believed had some kind of special power if they were to worship them and sacrifice to them and do these crazy things. You're going, God's people struggle with it? God's people still struggle with that. Not the little idols, but the little G's, the little gods in our lives. What God says to him here is very clear. Look at verse 3 with me. You shall have no other gods. You see the exception in there? Me either. There isn't one. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. If they allowed, if we allow our focus to be focused anywhere but on God, we become ineffective in serving the one true God or following his way. And that's what God's laying out as a principle. It says, you got to have one God. And your one God, he says, is me. And you're going, well, who does he think he is? Um, God. You all with me? No other gods. Because when we let anything else, any activity, any preference, any personal desire, anything else to take a higher priority than our service and our worship and our commitment to the one true God, we have fallen into idolatry. Our culture has an idol idol of sexuality, if you haven't noticed. It is pervasive and invasive in just about every aspect of life. And we've allowed that for us as a culture to become, for many, their God. They'll say, well, that's, my, that's who I am. That's what I am. I'm going to march and support. Guys, the Bible is very clear on these kind of things about what we deal with. And we are supposed to have one God. Second uh, on this uh, vertical side is the idea that we then have to reject idols. And they kind of roll together, but they really have a, a little bit of a separate uh, thought to it. Uh, it flows from this idea of worshiping God alone. Because as we live to live, as we choose to live in the reality of God as God alone, we then have to do what? We have to make some choices. We have to make some serious choices. It's kind of like peeling the onion back, you know, getting the ugly on the outside. If you were to add onion to a dish, you don't just grab it out of the pantry and start cutting, do you? Anybody like the outside of the onion? On yeah, Me either. You've got to cut it away, right? You've got to get rid of some of that stuff. That's the idea here. We've got to pull those out of our lives. And the idea of idols in our lives is not a new one. It's one that people on planet Earth have struggled with forever. Let me give you a couple of examples. I think Eve herself had an idol of control. Eve wanted to be the boss. She wanted to make the decision. Adam was standing right there next to her, and she said, I'm going to take the choice. Wow, that should have been a team effort, right? Might have come out with a better outcome. How about uh, Adam? I think Adam had an idol of peace at any cost. I know a lot of men that do that. They just roll over and go, whatever, honey, even if they know it's wrong. We struggle with idols, folks. But if we're going to truly worship God alone, we have to heed God's words in Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make 
uh, for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, if we choose to ignore the call from God to reject idols, we'll find ourselves living under some pretty pitiful consequences because we've been graciously invited to worship the one true God and now we're worshiping something else. And then the third aspect of this vertical relationship is one that we love to put out there but we love to ignore at the same time is the idea of respecting the name of God. I mean, what do you mean respect the name of God? The third aspect of it is this, we say, God, we're going to be respectful of you. Now, within Judaism today, do you realize they never even write or say the word Yahweh? They will abbreviate it so that they do not take it in vain by even writing the word on a piece of paper. You're thinking, thinking well, that's awfully legalistic. But the idea is they want to respect God in every aspect of life. Hear this closely. So often we treat the name of God so flippantly and so casually. We, we, we just don't respect his name. It's amazing to me how many people who profess to be followers of Jesus have a deep love for God and a commitment to God will toss his name into a conversation with just no reverence at all. Look at the text, verse 7. God said, you will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. One of my favorite movie series uh, probably of all time was the Indiana Jones movie series. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Uh, Indiana Jones, uh, Henry Jones Jr. was his real name. Do you remember in the third movie, if you don't remember it, you'll catch it here in a minute, His, him and his daddy were in a motorcycle uh, with a sidecar riding to get away from the Germans because that's kind of the premise of the movie. They're going to take over the world and they're going to stop them. I love it. You know, two guys taking off to do it. They knock down planes out of the sky. They're just amazing, you know. But they're at the crossroads and they're getting ready to head down to get uh, the cup that supposedly was Lord's Supper, Last Supper with Jesus, all that stuff. And they get to the crossroads. You remember the scene, if you remember the movie. And he was at the corner of, of, of the road to Berlin and the road uh, to uh, Venice. And he was going to head to Venice and head on down to the Middle East to go save the cup, okay? And his dad says, we've got to go to Berlin. Remember the scene? And Indiana Jones, sitting there on the motorcycle, as he turned the engine, I said, Dad, what are you talking about? I can just imagine me saying that to my dad, okay? And he says, we've got to get the book. Well, what's in the book that we need? And then he uses the Lord's name in vain. It was a scene that was just stuck in my mind because it ties into this, this, this right here. And his dad turned and smacked him with the back of his hand, if I remember right, and says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And yet in our culture today, what do we do? It's no big deal. Folks, we need to have more of that in our lives, not less, that we respect his name, that we treat his name with honor, and that we use his name carefully. Maybe we need to quit writing the name of God like our Jewish friends do to help remind us of that respect without being legalistic. So we've got the vertical side. Now we've got seven horizontals to hush, rush through. You ready? All right, here we go. Then he says, I want you to live rightly. 
He challenges them to live rightly. There's seven horizontal. Coming on the, the three commands regarding the vertical, he says there's seven things I want you to see. The first one is this, emulate my pattern of living. And you're going, I don't remember that command. Look with me. Now, God is God, and he's not human. But what he does here is he says, if you want to live the life that honors me, if you want to live a life that, that lifts my, my name up, you want to live life like me. And you're going, live like, like God. Yeah. Look what it says. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay. Six days you will labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner within uh, who is within uh, your gates. You're going, all right, here's what I want you to do. Think back to creation. You remember Genesis. God created and it took him seven days to create the world, right? No, it took him six days and the seventh day, Divine, almighty God did something that kind of blows us away. He what? He rested. What he's saying here is that's the pattern of your life. If you're going to take your life and work every day, work yourself to the bone every day and never stop and reflect on me, never stop and worship me, never stop and come into my presence, never stop and stop, you're not going to have a good life. He's telling them this is the way to live. Because if we live our lives working seven days on end, over and over and over, we miss it. Our life becomes all about work instead of about the thing that's really important. In fact, in that situation, God, I think, is saying that work can almost become our idol if we're not careful. Second, he says this, honor your parents. Look at verse 12. Notice he speaks the relationship of parents. You're going, man, my parents were great. It's easy to honor them. Some say my parents were awful, and I'm not going to honor them. He doesn't give us a qualifier here. Uh, but I think the tension between parents and kids is as old as Cain, isn't it? It's just there. But consider the command God gives us doesn't come with this qualifier. He says what? Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land, that your land, that the Lord your God has given you. What he's saying is don't just honor them with your words. Honor them with your heart. Respect them. Lift them up. You're going, but, but, but my dad's not a very respectable guy. Doesn't matter. As a child of God, we honor them anyway. Oh, Patrick, that's not easy. I didn't say it was easy. I just said that's what he said, okay? He's telling us that we have an important role to do. And we can use the right words but have a lousy attitude and we're really not honoring. But the honor, the benefit of honoring our parents, according to this verse, is that he will give us a long life, give us a life to live that's blessing others. And there's just something right about it. How about the next one, verse 13? Highly value life. You're going, I don't remember that one either. You probably remember that one. Don't murder as I was studying this week, I came across a, a little study that talked about the Hebrew word that's translated murder. It means murder. So it's the right translation, but the essence of the word is deeper than that. It it's actually speaks to the idea of not causing human death through carelessness or negligence. And the first thought I had was, you know, I have weird ones, but it was, it was, it was this thought is, if, if we, as Americans, we all drive a vehicle and we pay, whatever we pay for gasoline today, and, and we go out there and do the things that we do, but if we don't take care of our vehicle and it causes us to have a wreck and someone dies, we've actually 
murdered because we've not valued life. We can go into other areas of life and talk about that. We can talk about the idea of preserving the unborn. We've got a great call now as a, as a nation to step up and do better in that area. Uh, we need to care for the indigent in our society, the poor, to value life. That's the big idea. He says, I want you to value life. How about the next one, verse 14? It's to set some holy boundaries. You're going, I don't remember that one. Well, you remember this one. What are holy boundaries? Hang in there with me. The idea is that we set a high standard when it comes to our boundaries in the area of sexuality. Now, I'm not going into a lot of details for two reasons. One, I don't have a lot of time. And two, we have a mixed age group in the room. So I have to be careful. But the idea here is this, that we need to predetermine where the lines in life are located. So if if you're a single adult here today, you say, okay, I'm going to live my life in a way that honors God in this area. That means there are certain things you do not do before you get married. You're going, that's so old-fashioned, Patrick. Call me old-fashioned. I think that's what the Scripture's telling us. It also says if you're married, there's a line of what you can and cannot do with other people other than your spouse. Those areas that are off-limits because of that commitment you have. The idea here is that we need to be people who set those boundaries in advance. When I was a youth pastor 100 years ago, I would tell those kids, I said, don't wait until you get into that dating relationship and you're out on Friday night and it's 10 o'clock and you should have already gotten home and you're getting uh, hot to figure out where you're going to stop. Decide in advance. Set a holy standard. We need to set those standards, my friends, to make sure we're there and following God's truth. How about the next one? Respect others. You go, I don't remember that one either. It says it this way, don't steal. I think this one speaks to respect. Those who I respect, I'm going to not steal from them. And that doesn't mean just taking their goat or their donkey. It means respecting them enough to not take their reputation from them by my words, by speaking highly of them, of respecting them. There's so much we need to learn in these areas. We could spend 10 weeks working through this if you wanted to. But I think of the idea of respect, and I remember back, I was a, a junior college student down at Tyler. I, I started college down there, and I live in an apartment on the south side, and I had parked my car, grabbed my stuff, went into my apartment, came out the next morning, and my driver's window was gone, as well as stuff in my car. I was real happy, I just tell you. Y'all with me? I wasn't happy. But I think what really struggled, I struggle with is that they lacked respect for the things that I had worked to be able to purchase, and they took them. Respect, that we have that respect for each other. The next one, the, the sixth one, speak highly of others. Now, this isn't just limited to actions, but it goes to our words. Look what he says here. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, Eugene Peterson uh, did a paraphrase uh, of the scriptures called The Message. Have you ever had a chance to read that? If you haven't, it's a good read. It's not a, good, it's not a great translation, but it's a good read. Uh, he paraphrased this one this way. He says, no lies about your neighbor. No lies about your neighbor. Hmm. I've, almost wondered, I've always wondered why people are so quick to lie. You know, I remember the old game we played when we were kids, uh, or at least I did, the telephone game. You remember that? Where you have a group of kids in a circle and you tell a secret to one and they repeat it to the next and 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 it comes back around and it is multiplied 16 times 
and it doesn't even sound like what it started out as. And you're going, well, they just messed up. Okay, in that situation, probably. But often, what do we do? We bear false witness against each other by not speaking the truth, by adding a little juicy bit to make it sound better or to do something that would twist it in a way that makes us look better. Why do we do that? Let's be people that instead do this. I'm going to lift you up, and I'm going to hope you lift me up, and I'm going to celebrate your successes. I'm going to speak highly of you. I'm going to speak good things about you. We're going to talk about the good things in life. I don't know about you, but there's so much negativity in this world. I'm just tired of it, aren't you? So instead of jumping in the mud with them and throw some more sling of trash, how about us step up and do the right thing, and let's speak positive about each other. That's the standard he's setting for us. He says, I am your standard. And then he says, don't covet. He says that you shall not covet your neighbor's house, his, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor. You're going, man, I don't have an ox, I don't have a donkey, I don't have any servants, so I guess I'm good. Now, let's, let's think the big picture here. I think this may be the, um, the quintessential American commandment for us, to not covet our neighbor's. We live in a day where we believe what we have is just not good enough, don't we? We want more. The media tells us what we need to have. Advertising tells us you need this new, you need this new, you need this thing, you need that. You need to go on this trip. You need to spend money on this. You need to go through this. I was at the Ranger game with the kids and some adults in our church yesterday, and my little sister came over and, and, and went to the game with me, and we were sitting there talking about, we were talking about the cost of life, cost of utilities, cost of groceries, cost of everything right now. It's just, hi, she's a single mom because her husband passed away about four years ago. And she says, I go to the grocery store and all the generic stuff's gone and the name brand stuff's still there because people are buying the generic stuff now to save money. And yet they'll come out here to a Ranger game and spend $300 on tickets and they'll spend $100 on food or $200 on food. And it just she goes, how do they do this? We, we, we think we've got to have all that stuff, don't we? God says, you don't. Living in the path of the Lord brings contentment to it. Now, somebody asked me this morning, how are you going to get through this and get us out by noon? I said, oh, it'll be easy. i got lots of notes, so it makes me go fast. Three thoughts for you and I'll be done. First of all, God sets our life standard. And you go, well, yeah, of course. Oh, hang on, friends. You remember when you were a kid, somebody would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a what? A fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a ballet dancer. That wasn't me. Okay, that's my daughter. But there's something inherently wrong in that question. Because it assumes that we get to decide on our own exclusively with no outside influence what we're going to become. As a child of God, we have a higher authority we're supposed to check with on this stuff, aren't we? We're supposed to check in with the boss. I was talking with, with our group Wednesday night about this, this, this very thought. It's probably just because I was working on the sermon this week. But the reality is, is every single one of us is called by God to certain areas. We tend to have this idea that, oh, well, pastors and ministers and music guys, they're all called by God, so they're up here, and the rest of us are down here. Can I tell you something? There's nothing further from the truth than that thought. You may be a emergency room or surgery surgical nurse. You may be a real estate agent. 
You may be a retired individual. You may be a construction worker. You may be a policeman. But my, my friends, if God has called you into that area, you are just as called as anybody else. Let the Lord work through you. He sets the standard for you. And when we try to figure out how to do it on our own, we miss it. But when we let God infiltrate our lives and inform our lives and speak into our lives, we can find areas where we will make an amazing difference in life. Over in Peter's writing, he challenges us in this. He says, Obedient children, do not be conformed to the passage of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. What he was doing there, and I had to go to a little research because I'd forgotten this, he is quoting a phrase that is repeated again and again and again and again, and again. you'll get the point, in Leviticus. Peter was quoting Leviticus, this phrase. That's why it's in quotes in the modern translations. You shall be holy for I am holy. God is saying, be, I'm holy, be like me. Because when we set our own standard in life, here's what happens. We're going to set it to where we can get it. We're going to set a low standard so we can hit it every time. But when we have God's standard, which we're talking about this morning, God's holy standard, when we have that as our standard, we go, okay, I haven't made it yet, but that's the goal. That's the direction. That's where I'm just to be headed to. That's the vision for my life to be up there. Number two, how we relate to God then matters. What God's doing here is giving these Ten Commands as a baseline. A baseline is a, is a bare minimum. You're going, that's the bare minimum we're supposed to have? Yeah, this is not like once you get here, you've arrived. This is the standard, the basis upon which we're supposed to live our life. This is the basics of, of life, not, not the ex- up here. We're told not to murder, but really the big idea is in not murdering, we're valuing life. We're doing something that cares for people. And we, we surely have to stop short of pulling the trigger in anger, but that's not enough. We have to choose to develop positive ha- patterns where we don't put people in harm's way in the first place. It's a both-and approach. Don't commit murder, but preserve life. See, how we handle these Ten Commands in life will go a long way toward living up to God's standard. Again, I think Peter gives us a word here. We've already seen this in the service once, but look at it again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. A huge factor in living up to God's standard is this, learning to lean into him. Say, God, I want to be with you. I want to be close to you. I want to walk with you. I want to listen to you. I want to talk with you. I want to worship you. And I'm not going to have uh, these idols in my life. I'm not going to let these patterns lead me away from you. I'm going to live out a life in a way that you're honored in every single thing I do. And as we do those things, spelled out in the Ten Commands, we go in the right direction. And then one more thought. It's this. A great life is possible. How many of you uh, would say, man, I am really hoping that my life turns out to be very, very mediocre? You know anybody like that? I just want to be really excellently mediocre. Y'all with me? A little humor in that, I hope you caught that. Because none of us do that, do we? We want to do... Well, we want the good things in life. We want the best things in life. That what God does here in the Ten Commands is set forth an aspirational life that says, this is where I need you to head forward. This is the life I want you to live. This is the direction I want you to be. Some people think the Ten Commands are set forth to show us how pitiful we are. I don't think they are. I think they're there to say, this is what you can be. This is where you can go. This is what you can be all about. They're written to remind us that we can never live up to a standard 
So why try? No, that's not what it's about. What it's about is not some legal framework that says, well, you're going to try, but you're going to come short. So if you're out no, he's saying, I want you to be great people. Remember, the people to whom he's talking have just spent 400 years living in Egypt. And we don't know where along the way it went from being residents to becoming slaves. But at some point they became slaves. And their personal self-image must have really stunk at some point because they didn't think they could do this. And there's no way God can do this. And we can't go there. I mean, it was, a, it was like pulling teeth getting them out of the Egypt because they were just like, we can't do it. We can't do it. And they struggled for the next 40 years with that same attitude. Well, I don't think. I don't know. I don't think. But he says, No. What he's laying out here is the standard. I want you you to strive for that, and then I want you to go beyond that, and I want you to live a life that's blessing to me and blessing to those around you. And God was taking a people who were very much downtrodden, defeated, and deflated, and creating a nation unto himself. Paul described God's work this way, but God shows his love for us. How? God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Dear child of God, do you realize you are a direct beneficiary of Christ's blood shed on the cross for you? He did it while you were still a sinner. He wants you to live that life of victory and blessing with him. Just like Jesus came to deliver us from sin, he came to purchase our deliverance, And here we are. This is the place we begin life. But let me tell you something. If you don't know God, you haven't got there yet. So maybe you're here today and you haven't met him. We want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you have some other decision you need to make in life. We want to give you the opportunity to do that. See, he sets the standard. And that's the goal. And we want to go beyond that, right? And live great lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for these words in the Old Testament, Father, so many, many years ago that still speak volumes into our lives today. I pray for those who maybe have some type of decision they would like to make or need to make. Father, give them the courage and the faith to do that. We pray for those who need to just stop where they are right now and say, God, I haven't been living the standard. I'm not even trying. Help us to adjust in those areas. God, 